0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is so great to be with you. I'm so excited to be home with you, to see all your faces, and we just consider it a privilege to be here this morning. Um, also, I'm excited to be here to kick off Advent with you all. Uh, this is a great season. It's a wonderful season. This is a season of anticipation. It's a season of longing. We anticipate Christ's first coming in the manger in Bethlehem, the incarnation of Jesus. And then also part of this season is we anticipate his second coming. That Jesus is coming again to put things right and to restore the world and heal the world. The church, has always in the Bible, kind of plays around with time a bit. So in the Advent calendar, we actually talk about the second coming kind of at the beginning of Advent, and then we talk about his first coming. And today on this first week, it's interesting because one of the major themes is judgment. (laughs) The major themes is judgment. And in the newness of Advent, Advent's about newness. It's the very beginning of the church calendar year. It's, Advent is about new things and new things. But anytime we say yes, and you'll know this in your life, anytime you say yes to the new, to something new, it also means you say no to something, to things that are old, right? So saying yes to something and saying no to something else. There are ends before there are beginnings, So today we're going to talk a little bit about judgment. And so if you are here today and you have warm, fuzzy feelings about the beginning of Advent, and you have started listening to Christmas music, decking the halls, chestnuts are roasting on an open fire, you might lose some of those warm, fuzzy feelings here in a few minutes because we are talking about judgment. And this is the beginning of Advent. With that, let's all stand together. Our passage today comes from Luke 21. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the leaves. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. You can be seated this morning. So the guest preacher gets this passage this morning. And uh, we're following the historic church lectionary. Many of you know about this, this calendar of readings that the church has walked through for generations now. And, uh, and, And so we have this passage today, and this is kind of our gift to us this morning, but Jesus uses this really cosmic apocalyptic language here. He's talking about heavenly bodies shaking, the earth shaking. Earlier in this passage, he talks about the seas roaring. He talks about wars and rumors of wars and false teachers. And and it is so tempting. And then we see here this son of man who comes on the clouds. And then he says, oh yeah, and all of this will happen in the next generation. All of it's going to happen quickly. Seriously. And it's tempting for us, it's tempting for us to think in our 21st century eyes, reading this through our 21st century eyes, that Jesus is speaking about the end of the world. That he's talking about the end of all things, that there'll be destruction. And we think about that because that's the only time that we ever use language like this, don't we? Big apocalyptic cosmic language is when the end is near. I just saw the latest Hunger Games movie there's a lot of like the world going crazy and going nuts. And we think about science fiction and fantasy. And that's when we use these kinds, of wor- these kinds of words. The end is near. But if you read the passage carefully, this is not a passage about the end of the world, at least not how we think of it. The Christian narrative shows us that the world, when it does come to fulfillment, that it will end in peace and in restoration, not in destruction, Not in everything being torn apart, but everything being restored. In fact, if you read this passage closely, you'll see what Jesus is telling his disciples is that all of these things, when they happen and there's this persecution, that means it's not the end. These things have to happen first. The fig tree is just sprouting. So these things, when they happen, these cataclysmic things, they don't represent the end of something. They represent the beginning of something. Now, the key to us understanding this whole passage, this whole chapter, in fact, is to understand a building in Jerusalem that was the temple in the first century. And we have to understand how the first Christians viewed this temple, what it meant to them, Now, we don't see a whole lot of context in our passage today, but in the section leading up to this, it's interesting. The disciples are leaving the temple and they look up and they look at how magnificent the temple is and they comment to Jesus about it. Look at how magnificent this temple is. And then Jesus says to them, he says, yeah, you know how magnificent this temple is, how beautiful it is? It's all gonna be torn down. It's all gonna be destroyed. And then he goes into this description about this time of upheaval when everything in the world will be turned upside down, when all of this chaos will happen. But even in the midst of this, even when times are difficult, that they should remain faithful and follow after him. The temple at this time was everything for the Jewish people. So it was the center of their religion and the center of their spirituality, but it was also the center of their economics It was the center of their culture and their society. The temple took up a really large, the the buildings of the temple took up a really large section of the entire city of Jerusalem. It was everything for them. Well, why would one building mean so much to a group of people? Well, they believed, and it's true, that God gave them this building, that God gave them the temple as his house, that their God, the God of Israel, lived among them and close to them. And this was a sign to the pagan world. All the other pagan gods and deities were distant and flighty and far away, but they could say the God of Israel, our God lives in our neighborhood. He came close to us. And if you don't believe us, his house is right down the street. Go down there, right? They believed this so much, this place that heaven and earth meet, this place where God lives. They believed it so much that they began to create systems, where the closer that you were to the temple, the closer that you were to God. The priests were the only ones who could enter the temple, the center of the temple. Women and Gentiles were kept at a distance. Those who were broken in their bodies were restricted access altogether. And this temple was magnificent. Solomon, King Solomon, built the temple, but Herod, who was the Roman governor of Judea, he was rebuilding it, and it was magnificent. It was phenomenal. It was easily the largest and most imposing structure for thousands or hundreds of miles in any direction. In fact, the rabbis said this of the temple, said, he who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor <clears throat> has never seen a desirable city in his life. He who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his life. So the disciples comment on how amazing this temple is, the center of faith and life and culture. And Jesus says to them, this place where heaven and earth meet, God's house, the center, that's everything for you, it's going to be torn down. It's going to be destroyed. Your identity will be caved in. Now, if this happened to you, if the place where heaven and earth met in your life, the thing that you cling on to the tightest, if it was destroyed, it would feel like the end of the world. And only the strongest language you could possibly use would suffice. It would feel like heavenly bodies were shaken. It would feel like everything was gone. Jesus's words, his pred- prediction about this place, the temple, came true in 70 AD. Jerusalem was ransacked and the temple, the center of Jewish faith, was destroyed. The Roman armies burned it, and finally, Emperor Titus ordered that the remains be demolished, and it sent the Jewish world into chaos. The world came to a crashing halt. Okay, so if this passage is about the temple, what is this language? What is this phrase? The coming of the Son of Man. What do we mean by that? The coming of the son of man. Well, there's this really interesting and kind of weird story, but again, I didn't pick this passage today, but there is this weird and and kind of interesting story that Jesus is drawing on here. In the first century, uh, this story, Daniel chapter seven, was really ingrained in the people's minds. And it's this strange, weird story. The prophet Daniel has this vision of these beasts, Okay, there's four beasts, strange looking beasts. They've got different animal heads and all kinds of weird things. And they come out of the sea. And in the first century, people heard about these beasts that were in the prophecy in Daniel and in this vision. And they thought the beasts represented their pagan oppressors. So the children of Israel had been under the thumb of pagan oppressors for generations. So they had been under the thumb of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So when they heard about these beasts, they thought about their pagan oppressors. Now in this vision, there's also another character called the Son of Man. And the Son of Man defeats these beasts. And there's this law court scene where God finds in favor of the Son of Man and all of the beasts are punished, okay? And the punishment that the beasts faced is also the same thing that vindicates the son of man. So the fact that the beasts are destroyed shows that the son of man is who he says he is. So their end, the end of these systems, the end of these beasts, the end of these things that kind of claimed authority show the beginning of something else, that the son of man is who he says he is. And that scene ends, the son of man is on a cloud and he shares the throne with God. So that's Daniel chapter seven. So the children of Israel, if you're in the first century and you're um, part of the children of Israel, they have suffered under these pagan oppressors for generations, God's people under foreign rulers. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am that son of man from Daniel seven. I am here, but the world has rejected me. All of the systems of the world, the empires of the world, the political systems and the religious systems have rejected me. None of them identify me as the son of man, as who I am. But one of these days, these systems are going to be destroyed. This center of faith and life is going to come to an end. And its punishment, the thing that causes it to end, will actually show me for who I really am. Jesus says, there's a new sheriff in town. These systems days are numbered. Now, this story is not about the second coming of Jesus. Luke believes in the second coming of Jesus. We need to get that clear. And he talks about it in the book of Acts, but this is not it. This is about something else. Jesus says to his disciples, when you see this temple, the center of your life, the center of your faith, the center of your culture and religion, it's going to be destroyed. And when it's destroyed, it will be a sign that these systems, these safety nets, are incomplete, they have come to an end. And at that point, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds. You will see me for who I really am. Okay, great story, great historical story. That's from 2000 years ago. Why should we care about a story from 2000 years ago? We've had bigger buildings than this Jerusalem temple that have been destroyed. We've had bigger crises in the world that have been destroyed since that. Why should we care about a temple being destroyed 2000 years ago? Because today we live in a world of hollow systems that we trust in. Some of them appear good or they they look good, but there are so many counterfeit systems. And if they're allowed to, to rule our life, if they're allowed to take control over our life, if we define our identity by these systems, then we're gonna go down a completely different path than the way of Jesus. Some of these are religious systems. Some of us find ourselves today part of religious systems that have promised a lot to us, but they're actually based in fear and exclusion and legalism. And they've run our lives and they've proved themselves to be hollow. Some of these are political systems. Some of us have put our political affiliation and ideology above our identity in the kingdom of God. We flipped it upside down there. And we find that when we do that, we might wake up one day and go, I am now more of this political party than I am a Christian. I've turned this inside out. I've turned this upside down. And we'll find that those systems are hollow. And when these things fall, when these things come to a crashing halt, when they end, they show us there must be a better way. There must be something else. And at that moment, the son of man comes on the clouds. For some of us, it's consumeristic systems that we've spent and we've spent and we've spent and we've spent to try to achieve something, maybe keep up with the Joneses or just to achieve a certain status. And we spend and we spend and we spend and maybe we've come to financial ruin or maybe we've just come to this place of realization where that is hollow. The high from the credit card doesn't do it anymore. There must be something better. At that moment, the son of man comes on the clouds. Maybe some of us, have found ourselves going to a substance over and over again. And we've come to the end of the bottle or we've woken up the next morning and we've realized I am going towards a very broken place and not towards a very whole place. In looking for peace in the midst of loneliness, I've reached for this substance that now has a control over my life. At that moment, at the end of your rope, the son of man comes on the clouds. Some of us... um, are awake at night with deep insecurities over how people think of us. The approval that we have in other people's eyes. Do they like me? Do they think I'm of value? Maybe I'm of lesser value because of how they think about me. We are, our stomach is in knots over this. And at that moment, the son of man comes on the clouds and says, there's a better way. Those systems are hollow. They're incomplete. Some of us have come to the end of a relationship and that relationship felt like that person was part of us. And we've come to the end of the relationship and we go, where do I go now? At that moment, the son of man comes on the clouds. Systems are judged and structures are destroyed in judgment, not because God is mad at those systems. We need to understand this. But because those systems in and of themselves are incomplete or broken. The temple was a really good thing. It was a wonderful thing. It was a sign to the pagan nations. This is where God lives. Our God is close, but it was incomplete. There was a new sheriff in town. The time had ended and there was a new time that was to come. The old had to give way to the new. Some systems are fine, but they come to an end and we see Jesus for who he really is. So then Jesus says in this chapter, the world is gonna be thrown into a series of convulsions. All these things are going to happen. And that's what happens when the purposes of God and the pain of the world meet. There's messiness, there's chaos. And I promise you, if you keep following Jesus in your life, if you keep going after him, there's gonna be messiness. There's gonna be chaos. Sometimes when that stuff happens, we think we've done something wrong oh man, I've done something wrong. Bad things are happening. Chaotic things are happening. But sometimes as we follow after Jesus, that's just the old system's ending, coming to their end to make way for the new. There's always messiness when heaven and earth meet. Jesus says to his disciples, that heaven and earth messiness place, you're gonna get caught up in all that. So you're gonna be persecuted and he gets very specific to them in previous verses. You're gonna be handed over to authorities. You're gonna be flogged. You're gonna be arrested and you'll have to be a witness to the gospel. But he says, don't worry because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Just stay true to your calling, bear your cross, proclaim the gospel. And then we see for those first disciples that this prediction was fulfilled, that uh, Christians were viciously persecuted by Nero who said this of Christians. He said they were notoriously depraved And he said that they held on to a deadly superstition. They were persecuted. So in the years that followed, if you know a little bit about early church history, Christians were persecuted. And you can read some of these accounts of persecution. They were accused for things they didn't do, namely a fire they were accused for. They were killed in all kinds of creative ways. They were crucified upside down. They were lit on fire to serve as torches for parties for the empire. They were thrown in boiling oil. They were thrown to lions. First thing we need to say this morning, it's sober reality to us. Again, not a warm and fuzzy message this morning, but the the first thing we need to remember is this kind of persecution still happens today. That there are Christians throughout the world who are persecuted even in some of these ways today, particularly in the Middle East. Don't think this doesn't still happen. We talked to somebody this week who had um, recently befriended someone who had moved from Iran recently. And he, uh, he was in business where he was out, able to travel um, all over the place, very high-paid, well-paid job, and just recently moved to the United States. And while he was here, he had become, um, become a Christian, converted to Christianity. And his world began to flip upside down because when that happened, he first of all found out that he had lost his job. Um, secondly, he found out through kind of sources that hearsay, things that you find out, that there are actually gangs waiting for him to return to Iran so that they can kill him because of his conversion. He found out that the government has gotten rid of all of his citizenship completely. So he's applied for asylum. He's kind of waiting on that response on asylum here in the United States. And and as I'm hearing this story, I'm like, I mean, this is a guy that lives in Texas. And I'm like, this is is real. This is real stuff, right? This still happens today. So we stand, as the church here, we stand with those who are persecuted around the world. And yet in many ways, the sobering reality is that this is what we're called to, that we're called to a life, even when it's hard, a life in the way of Jesus, that our faith calls us to lay down our lives, whatever that means. So secondly, and first acknowledging this still happens, secondly, we also have to acknowledge we don't experience that kind of persecution. Well, maybe that's obvious. You know, maybe, yes, obviously we don't. But the reason why we have to say it is there are a lot of Christians today who play the persecution card, right, here. That we say we're persecuted and we're not actually persecuted. We've lost, maybe lost a little bit of clout in the broader culture, but we are not persecuted. Now, hear me say this. Um, I do think the religious liberties conversation is important. Um, I think it's significant. It's something we should be thinking about. But we in the United States are not persecuted. If someone says happy holidays to you, they are not persecuting you, okay? I promise. (laughs) Christianity is still by far the largest religion in the United States. Look at the numbers. By far the largest religion. You are not an oppressed minority. Sometimes we act like an oppressed minority and we're not, okay? Okay? Now, in my church, I wanna qualify it with this. In my church, and I know it's probably true here, but I have heard stories of people who are ridiculed for their faith. People who have to make an excuse to their roommate of where they're going on Sunday mornings or they feel like they have to because their roommate just makes fun of them constantly for their Christianity. There's some situations where um, I've heard where bosses are so bent against the way of Jesus that that there's just, it's like you're speaking two completely different languages. I've heard stories, and I know they're true in here too, where, where we have felt rejected for our faith. We wouldn't call it persecution, but there's rejection. And in the midst of that, Jesus says to us, this is what I've called you to. This is what I've signed you up for. You will be rejected for your faith. We shouldn't be surprised by this. In fact, Jesus's brother, James, said this, "'Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, "'whenever you face trials of many kinds, "'because you know that the testing of your faith "'produces perseverance.'" We will be rejected for our faith. That is part of the deal. And there is a chance, someday, there's a chance that someday in this country, Christianity will be pushed to the margins the christians may find themselves an oppressed minority there's a recent uh, pew research study uh, a lot of people made a big deal about it that christianity across the nation is in decline on almost all kind of levels that it's in decline it's not some sort of major there's no other religion that's kind of taking its place or anything like that actually the rise that's happened is in people who are unaffiliated with religion or faith altogether so we've seen that study that's happened there is a little bit of a decline but it's not a massive decline By and large, I think we as Christians in the United States have a different problem. Our challenge is not persecution. Our challenge is apathy. Now, what do I mean by apathy? What's become easy, apathy, what I mean is it is so easy for us to be formed and shaped by other stories beside the Jesus story. It is so easy for us to lean into other stories and let them define who we are. For the past several generations, Christianity has become a cultural religion here. And in many countries, if you're an American, people just assume you're a Christian. (laughs) If you ever travel overseas, you'll find, they just assume you're a Christian if you're an American. It has taken root culturally in many parts of society. And there is a problem with that. Christianity historically has never thrived as a cultural religion. It hasn't. It's always given way to apathy. So look at the world today. The government of Iran is hostile to Christianity. But look at the underground church in Iran. It's exploding. It's exploding in a good way. Exploding is an interesting word. Exploding in a good, big way, right? Not exploding. Yes. I went to China several years ago. And Christianity, many of you know the story, smuggling Bibles into China. You've heard these stories from missionaries, but um, it used to be outlawed in China. Christianity grew so rapidly and so quickly in the underground church that the Chinese government basically said, okay, this is embarrassing. We have to find a way to make Christianity legal and still have some control over it. So they created the Chinese church, the Christian church, right? So the underground church continues to grow massively, massively, like crazy. And then also there is this official sanctioned Chinese church, which we visited while we were there. And there's standing room only, There is a longing for Christianity in in China in this place that it has been kind of pushed to the margins, that it was outlawed for a long time, was persecuted for a while. There was standing room only. And I expected the preacher to preach state propaganda and she's preaching straight from the gospels. And she's telling, they can't even control the, the official Chinese church, right? Do you think Christians in Iran struggle with apathy? Do you think a Christian in Iran wakes up and says, eh, I don't really wanna pray today. I want to really want to read my Bible. I can't go to church today. It's raining outside, right? I don't think that's their struggle. Um, because this stuff, this way of Jesus, is something they've given their life for. It's their life source. They know that it has to be everything or nothing. It has to be their whole life. They might die for this thing. Now, here's what a lot of preachers do in, in the United States, and I understand why. Okay, the temptation. So we see the apathy that's present in the Christian church. We see, okay, people aren't showing up to stuff, and we don't feel like they're kind of living this path of discipleship, and this cultural Christianity has set in. So let's create a crisis. Let's create a crisis. Let's create some idea of persecution. Our people are too lazy. They're not committed to the way of discipleship. I know. Let's get them fired up over Starbucks cups, right? Over happy holidays. You're being persecuted, Right? So that's what we do, we create this crisis. We we try to wake people up out of their malaise to fire people up. The problem with that is it's obvious to the rest of our society that we make that stuff up, right, but it's not real. So here's the thing too. Disciples are not called to simply live Jesus and serve Jesus in the presence of persecution. They are also called to serve Jesus in the presence of apathy. The call is the same. Whether we're persecuted or we're not, our call is to serve Jesus. And I actually think the decline of Christianity in our culture may have a good side to it. What do I mean by that? When we experience, and we will experience, the decline of cultural Christianity, and that will cause us, I think, to push past apathy, and it will cause true Christianity to rise to the surface. There's a possibility that one day we may be persecuted in this country for our faith. But right now, that's not our problem. Our problem is not persecution, it's apathy. But our calling is the same. Serve God when times get tough. Follow Jesus, be faithful. Now, I don't want you to hear, this isn't the starving kids in China plea. Do you remember when uh, you wouldn't finish all the food on your plate as a kid and your mom would say there are starving kids in China that would love to have that food, you better finish that? I'm not saying um, there are persecuted Christians throughout the world, so you better read your Bibles, and you better shape it up, and you better serve God and all these things. That's, that's not what we're saying today. What we're saying is that whether we face persecution or apathy or doubt or tragedy, our call is the same. It's to serve God. It's to follow after him with all that we are. We are invited to do that. We are invited to follow Jesus. And I say invited for a reason. You don't have to follow Jesus. There are a lot easier paths in the world, (laughs) a lot easier stories that you could follow, but there is no life more rewarding and there is no hope more true than the way of Jesus. Remember this morning our Advent hope that one day the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. We anticipate that day. But here's something cool that happens. When we anticipate that day and we live as if that day is coming, we begin to see parts of that day spring up in our lives. So the future breaks into the present. We begin to see the kingdom of God in our lives and around us and recognize, even though there's so much brokenness in the world, there's so much loss of hope that the Holy Spirit is at work and we can join in with him. So, where are you at this morning? I want you to think about your life. Maybe you're here and you are somebody who is genuinely facing rejection for your faith. You can identify who that is. You can identify in your life. I'm not talking about in the happy holidays way that the Starbucks barista said happy holidays to you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about maybe you have people in your life who mock you, who ridicule you, or even want to do harm to you. Or maybe you're just in a situation now where your world has been flipped where you feel that chaos, you feel that messiness where heaven and earth meet. And it feels like the end of the world to you. It feels like heavenly bodies might as well be shaking. My word to you today is you are not alone. In the early church, the church would cling together in times of persecution. I was talking to somebody after the first service and we get a little bit surprised because Paul is really harsh in some of his writings with Christians who leave the community. He's just really, really harsh. And today we go, why are you so mean? They just are doubting or lost their faith or whatever. But at that time, if somebody left the community, they could easily tell one of the... Uh, part of the empire or or some of the police at that time who could come and actually kill and destroy that whole group of people or persecute them. So Paul is really harsh with them. Like, don't leave, don't walk away. But maybe you feel like these systems are crumbling and our call is move close. Like, you are not alone. You're not alone historically, but you're also not alone in this room. Like, this is a community that stands together to follow the way of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you feel like the systems of your world are in chaos. Maybe there's something that you've held on to. Maybe it was a uh, a religious system, political system, consumeristic system. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's a need for approval or workaholism or whatever it is. And you've held on to that and you're noticing that way is hollow and your world is crumbling. That's defined your identity. What do I have if I don't have that anymore? Jesus meets us and we see the son of man there. Maybe you followed Jesus for a long time, but your Christianity has always been on the margins and you feel like it hasn't been changing you as it should. Maybe you feel like you're giving way to apathy, that there's other stories that are leading me and guiding me. And today you're convicted that these things have to change. Well, I wanna tell you, even though the end feels messy, the end is good because it's necessary for new beginnings. The new is coming. If you're in that place and you feel like you're giving way to apathy or to other stories in your life, I wanna suggest some very practical things to you today, okay? The first thing is I I wanna encourage you to start a habit of spiritual disciplines in your life. Prayer, contemplation, Bible study. If you're confused at where to start or you're new to this whole Christianity thing, your pastors can help you with that. And Pastor Ed just did a whole intensive on spiritual disciplines that you can find online. Um, Check that out. But I wanna encourage you to do something, some spiritual formation exercise every day. This isn't a legalistic thing. It's not a you better do this kind of thing. This is what we realize in our life that um, sometimes we, we realize that there are better ways to live in our life and that we're formed by our habits. Whatever we do every day on a consistent basis over and over again, that's gonna begin to shape and form who we are. So if we wanna be whole and healthy people, let's create whole and healthy habits in our life. The second thing is if you don't already attend church regularly, I wanna encourage you to do it. Attend church regularly. And I wanna let you in on a little secret. Um, I don't think that the primary purpose for the Sunday morning service is to inspire you. I don't think that's the primary purpose. Sometimes we think that's what it is. I go to church on Sunday morning, I get inspired, and then I go and I live that inspiration throughout my week, and then I come back and I get inspired again. Well, the only problem with that is sometimes we fail at the inspiration, (laughs) So sometimes you leave and you go, wow, I really wasn't very inspired this week. Was church like for nothing? But I don't think the primary purpose of the Sunday morning gathering is inspiration. I think the primary purpose of the Sunday morning gathering is formation that you are being formed. Every time you come to the table, you're being formed. Every time you hear the story of God, you are being formed. Do you think that we say the Apostles' Creed every week and we think everybody's just gonna have goosebumps every time we say that and be super inspired? No, it's forming us though. It's shaping who we are. We may not be able to see it or feel it instantly, but it's forming us. When you hear that benediction over you every week, it's forming you, it's shaping you. So I wanna encourage you in that. When, I, when people try out a new church, I encourage them, like, don't ask yourself, am I being inspired by this service? Ask yourself, am I being formed in the way of Jesus when I come here? Third thing, find a way to serve the poor. We see throughout scripture that Jesus is always on the side of the poor, and I think that's where we most experience him. Do you want an experience with God? Don't go to just the most happening worship service you can find, go to a soup kitchen. Or go to a place where you can can serve the poor and you will find God was there way before you ever got there. And then the fourth thing, and a lot of these go together, engage community. Our heart for you is not that you just come here on Sunday mornings every week, but that you actually build life-giving communities with one another. That you find people in your life that you link arms with and say, we are in this together. There's something about that that changes our lives. So I wanna encourage you, you're not alone when life comes crashing down. You're not alone. God is with you in persecution and he's with you in apathy. This Advent, I want us to ask ourselves, what are the hollow systems that shape our lives? What are the hollow systems that we give into? What are those things that we go, well, maybe that really forms my identity more than Jesus does. And may we lay those down this morning at the table. May those systems, my prayer is that those systems would come to an end in our lives, no matter how much chaos that, or messiness that causes for us, so that we might see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you have given us a new way, a better way to be human in the world. We are so grateful and so thankful. Lord, we recognize that so many of the stories and the counterfeits that we hold onto are just parodies. They're pale and light of who you are. Would you convict us this morning? We know that you convict, not condemn, that you love us and you embrace us fully. And then you also say, there's a better way. Would you convict us and empower us to follow hard after you because only you have the words of eternal life? in the failure of our systems, may we see you, the son of man, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.